Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. I'm going to start this morning by making a statement that uh, you would probably expect a preacher to say, but I think it's worth saying, and that is that I love the church. I don't make that statement because I think the church is perfect, but I make that statement because I've seen what the church can be when it is at its best. My family began attending church when I was seven years old, and since then I've seen the church do incredible things, care for the sick, the hurting, and the grieving. I've seen the church welcome in people that could not find a home anywhere else. I've seen, I've seen the church speak truth in love to call people out of sin and into life with Christ for those reasons and so many others. I love the church. That doesn't mean the church was, is without faults, either this one in particular or the global church as a whole. But the reason I don't give up on the church, even when it hurts, is those moments where we get it right, where we reflect the words and the deeds of Jesus. And that's why I love the church, and I hope you do as well. But I also know there's a chance that you might be here this morning giving the church one last chance or wondering if it's still worth it. If that is you, let me say first and foremost that I am glad you are here because we might have all sorts of reasons why we might want to give up on the church. We might say, I'm too busy, it's too boring, the people are hypocrites, the music's too loud, the music isn't isn't loud enough, whatever it might be, and I can't solve all those problems this morning. It seems like you can't ever please everyone on those matters. But what I want to do this morning is try to help us see what the church is supposed to be. Because the church can get a bad rap, and if we're being honest, at times that bad rap is deserved. But at the risk of overgeneralizing, it seems like a lot of our problems flow out of misunderstanding what the church is supposed to be, and misunderstanding who we are supposed to be within it. Today's the last week of this sermon series we've been in called You Are Not Your Own, where we've been confronting the message in our world that says that it's up to you to find meaning and purpose for your and saying that instead, the message of Jesus tells us that we first and foremost belong to God, that he has bought us with a price. And the fact that he has done that gives us our meaning and our purpose. But because the the narrative that we are our own, it's up to us to do whatever we think is best, is just the water that we swim in each and every day, it can be very easy for that line of thinking to seep into how we think about church. When in fact, I think it's appropriate to say, as we've said every week of this series, that the church is not our own, but instead it belongs to God. I can't solve every problem in the church before lunch today, but I do want to look at three passages from the New Testament that I think at least give us a vision of what the church is called to be so we can aspire to that calling together. And for everything we could say about what Jesus calls the church to be, we could at least say he calls us to be different to be holy, and to be equipping. And so I want to look at that this morning. But before we get to what the church is, we should go a little further and clarify what the church is not. Because when we say that the church is not our own, what I mean is we do not exist, the church does not exist for the sake of ourselves, just to make sure everything is exactly how we want it. We exist to bring glory to God. 
And as we do that, as we strive to do that, we should also acknowledge that we are not always perfect in doing so. If you're looking for the perfect church this morning, I'm sorry to tell you that it is not this one, and it probably won't be any other church you are ever going to walk into. We don't claim to be perfect, but we are doing the best we can to follow Jesus together. We should also say the church is not a building. And I know what we mean when we say that, that this building is the church, and I don't think that's bad, as long as we don't allow that to bring us to the conclusion that the only thing that matters in following Jesus is what happens on this property. Because the God who rules over all things is building his kingdom across the globe, and he calls us to be a part of it. He is not confined to what happens within these walls on Sunday morning. It's good that we have this space and that we gather here, but we should not confuse that with all the church is called to do and be. Because the church is not a building. The church is also not a social club. And what I mean by that is that the church is not just you know, a place to see people, meet new people, make connections, whatever it might be. And that does happen, and that's good when it does happen. And I can speak from experience. If you play your cards right, you get a wife out of the deal. But we are not just here to encounter others. We are here to encounter the God who has created us and has sent his son so that we can have a relationship with him. The church is not a social club. It's where we encounter God himself. And the church is not a business. We keep budgets as a church because we want to be good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. And I am grateful that we do it. I'm grateful that we have so many people who volunteer their time to make sure that we do that well. But that does not mean we are just here for the sake of raising funds or keeping the bills paid. I'm not a salesman up here to try to get you to buy a product for the first time or to speak to you as shareholders to make sure you keep investing in what we are doing. We are a family following Jesus together. And my hope is that you would participate in that fully. And the church is also not a necessary evil. There's a line of thinking, I've heard it and I can understand to a certain extent where it comes from that says, you know, I really like Jesus, I just don't like the church. So if I have to go to church to get to Jesus, I guess I will, but I don't really want to. And I can understand that, like I said, to an extent, but the church is not just something we endure for the sake of getting access to Jesus. The church is the bride of Christ and we are called to be a part of that body. And lastly, the church is not dying. Sometimes we can despair and think our world's headed downhill, it's all falling apart, and I'm not saying there's nothing wrong in the world, I'm not saying it's wrong to be concerned about what the future holds, but I am saying that we should balance that by remembering that the church is exploding in places all across the globe. Just as one example, in the year 2000, there were 814 million Christians in Europe and North America combined, and there were 660 million Christians in Africa and Asia. In 2022... There were 838 million Christians in Europe and North America, so a slight increase, and over a billion Christians in Africa and Asia. Jesus was serious when he said the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. So if all of that is at least a glimpse into what the church is not, let's talk about what the church is so we can dream about what God might want to do through us as he calls us to be different, holy and equipping. The first passage I want to look at comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
And we looked at the letter of 1 Corinthians at the beginning of this series, and so I said a few weeks ago that Paul writes this letter of 1 Corinthians to a church that is dysfunctional, dealing with all sorts of issues, and Paul is trying the best he can to sort them out. And the first piece of that dysfunction that he confronts is their infighting about their favorite preachers. Like how other groups of people in their day might get together and debate who is the best philosopher, who's the best speaker, how we might debate today, who's the best athlete or actor or whatever it might be. And Paul cannot stand this because it misses the point of God's calling. Because God sent Jesus and Jesus acted in a way that our world would see as strange and foolish. He has created the church as a group of people that sometimes look strange and foolish and that's okay And because that's the case, he reminds the Corinthians of how God has worked in their life so they can understand where their priorities should be. He's picking up in 1 Corinthians 1 at verse 26. Paul writes, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus' kingdom does not work like any other kingdom the world has ever seen. When the kingdoms of this world say that might makes right, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When the kingdoms of this world say that bigger is always better, Jesus says his kingdom is a little more like a mustard seed. When the kingdoms of this world try to have the largest impact on the most efficient budget, Jesus sits down for meals with the broken, the hurting, and the sinful, and this is the one that we follow. This is the one who has saved us. Jesus did not come to this earth holding tryouts for the best and the brightest. When Paul first proclaimed the gospel in Corinth, he didn't reserve it for the philosophers and the rhetoricians. It was not reserved for the powerful and the influential. You didn't have to have a high rank in the government or the military to get in. You didn't need to have a certain net worth to be accepted. In fact, a good number of the early members of the church were on the lower rungs of society with no status in the outside world to speak of. And yet because of the death and resurrection of Jesus... They were able to proclaim that they were a child of the one true God because of his love and goodness toward them. And yet now, they're fighting with each other about rank and prominence, arguing about who's the best, just like the rest of the world, and that is not how things are supposed to be. And as we are the church of Jesus today, we are to model something that looks very different from our world. We don't use the world's metrics of success. We don't fight about the things the world fights about, or at least we shouldn't. Our boast is not in influence and power on the world's terms. Our boast is not in having the flashiest production. Our boast is in the Lord. Our boast is not in being entertaining. Our boast is in the Lord. Our boast is not in the great things we have done. Our boast is in the Lord who has done great things for us. And those great things that Jesus has done appear foolish. It looks foolish to say greatness is found through humble service. It's foolish to say that the greatest person on earth died the death of a rebel on a cross. But that's the path Jesus followed, and it's the path he invites us down. And that means there are times where we are going to look strange, and it's okay when we do. 
Towards the end of every summer, I go on a preaching retreat with some friends of mine, and a few years ago, on the last night that we were all together, about half of us that have been on the retreat were still there, and so we went out to ice cream because we love Jesus, and we walk into uh, this ice cream shop, and there's six of us, if I remember right, and two of us are, you know, late 50s, early 60s, that age range. Two of us are, are in the Two or three of us are in that kind of mid-20s to mid-30s range, and then uh, one or two maybe a little younger than that. And we walk into this ice cream shop, and they were trying to close, and we wouldn't let them because we wanted ice cream. And the high school kid dipping the ice cream was, was doing everything he could and was helping us. At one point, he looked at us, and he was like, and he said, so are you guys like, are you guys like friends from high school or something? <laughs> now, my first reaction was to be offended. I was like, look at this group. Like, you think... I went to high school with that guy, and just in case any of the friends that were there for that listen to this later, yes, I am talking about you. But, uh, but as offended as that, as offensive as that can be, in some ways, there's a part of me that gets it. I mean, a group like that doesn't make a whole lot of sense apart from Jesus. But if we believe the gospel, if we believe that we are bound together in the family of God, and that bond stretches across every barrier humanity would ever want to put up, then bonds among people our world wouldn't normally expect to be together make perfect sense. Not because following Jesus makes us better people, makes us better at making friends or whatever it might be, but because we know that we are bound by something stronger than any other division. And if we are following Jesus, that means he has brought us everything we need. And so it's pointless to waste our time on the world's measurements. Our world uses metrics like saying a business is a Fortune 500 company or reading lists of the world's richest people who are looking at who's won the Nobel Prize in their field. And we can translate those metrics into the church when our Savior said things like, blessed are the meek and blessed are those who mourn. When we buy into our world's way of doing things, we miss out on life with Jesus. When we boast in ourselves, we lose out on the chance to boast about what Christ has done. When we boast in how great we are, we miss out on opportunities to testify to the greatness of God. When we extol our accomplishments, we steal glory from the only one who deserves it. The church is not a great thing because it's full of great people and you have to be a great person if you want to be a part of it. The church is great because we have a great Savior. And that is where our focus should always be. And if it is ever on anything or anyone except Jesus, we are in trouble. And in a world driven by celebrity, status, productivity, and achievement, the church is a place where the leader is a servant, and he invites his followers to serve as well. And that is one piece, I think, of what it means to be the church. But we are not just different for the sake of being contrarian. We're different because Jesus has made us holy. Over in 1 Peter, in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, we get a brief portrait about who Jesus has made us to be. Peter writes that you, speaking to the church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Throughout this letter, Peter will, Peter will use terms that get used for God's people in the Old Testament and other places, and he applies it to the church, which is significant, because Peter is writing this letter to people who would not normally expect language like that to be applied to them. They're a crowd that, for the most part, is not ethnically Jewish. 
They didn't grow up going to synagogue and learning the stories of the Old Testament. If they did attend synagogue worship, they were treated as second class. And yet now, because of Jesus, they've been welcomed into the family. These terms that used to just be for people who checked all the right boxes are now for everyone. They've been picked for the team when they thought they'd been left out. They had been declared a royal priesthood, a part of God's family, and called to represent him to the world when before they were kept at arm's length. They've been called a holy nation when before they were just the nations, all the people that weren't God's people. They are God's treasure, the thing he values above all else, when before they were just outsiders. And that's our story. We were in darkness, but the light of God has shone on us so that we might be made new. We were lost, but God came to find us. We were outcasts, but God brought us in. We were beggars, and he said that we are a part of the royal family. We've been told we were worthless, but God said we are the apple of his eye, and that is what Jesus has done for us, and that is what makes us different, and that is what makes us holy. It doesn't mean, holiness doesn't mean superiority. It means that God has set us apart for a specific purpose. And if we've said yes to following Jesus, if we become a part of this royal family we call the church, we are different, not because we're great people, but because of what the love of God has done to transform us. So that means we stand out. Not because we've got something figured out no one else does, but because we've been transformed by the love of God and offer a picture for the world around us of what the transforming power of the love of God truly looks like. And that is what gives us our purpose as God's people. These verses, if you notice, they don't just describe, here's who you are now, but they call, you that, they call us, in light of who we are, to respond. And that's the reality of any relationship. You don't come into a relationship with someone and remain the same. You're transformed by proximity to them. Jesus has saved us so we can proclaim his praises. We've been made God's people. We've been shown mercy so that we can show that mercy to others. And that is what it means to be a holy community. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably, and does not seem to make any sense. But what on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building a quite different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come live in it himself. Jesus makes us holy. And that makes us different. That means that we love when others hate. It means we serve when others fight. It means we care when others don't. It means we are generous when others are stingy. It means we are loving when others give up. And we do all of this because of what God has done in Jesus. That's what it means to be the church. But that's not just something we do as individuals. Uh, we see that this is something we do together over in Ephesians chapter 4. And at the beginning of Ephesians 4, Paul makes a shift from explaining what the message of Jesus is to working out how we respond to it. And he begins by showing that because we've been graced by Jesus, we're to model that grace in our relationships with one another as we use the gifts God has given each of us for his glory. And to explain what that looks like, he runs through some of those gifts, starting at verse 11, to explain and give a glimpse into what it looks like to show one another grace 
in our life together. Paul writes that Christ gave, himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The grace that each and every one of us has received is to be used for the sake of others. And that looks different for every person because we all have different gifts, but it starts there as we respond to the grace of God in life together. It takes a diverse group of people coming together so that everyone involved can grow in the wisdom and knowledge of the gospel. Paul gives just that short list there of some of these roles where these gifts get used, not as a complete list of all the ways to serve in the church, but as a glimpse into what it takes for us to be all that God desires for us. He mentions the apostles, the leaders in the early church, those sent by God to announce the gospel, and then the prophets, those called by God to make his will known to his people, proclaiming the truth of God and calling his people to live accordingly. He mentions evangelists, which in our world might bring images to mind of someone shouting on a street corner, but it's just someone who proclaims the good news that Jesus has died and risen from the dead to those who have not yet heard that message. And then lastly, he combines two terms, a pastor and teacher, to describe those who guide God's people underneath the ultimate authority of God as they teach them the message of Jesus. And these are some of the ways we serve one another to help us all grow into the likeness of Jesus. But do not miss that the goal of all these gifts is that they would be used to build up the entire church. It's so easy for us to miss this in our culture that worships fame and celebrity. We hear a great speaker or a dynamic leader or a brilliant teacher and we make everything about them. When Paul says speakers and leaders and teachers are a good thing that has blessed us with so that they can use their gifts to build up the church. I am grateful for so many people in this church that use the gifts God has given them in unique ways for his glory. And, and if you have gifts that you think you could use in service of God's kingdom and you're not doing that currently, let's have a conversation about what that might look like. But we should always keep in mind that the gifts are never about the person that has them. Gifts are given to us as an expression of the grace of God to be used for others. And they have that end goal there in verse 13 that Paul highlights that we should reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That is the end goal I want each and every one of us to experience as we live life together as a church so that we would be transformed into all God calls us to be and use what he's given us so that others might know that as well. God has given us one another so we all might grow into what he desires us to be. And that's what it means to be the church. What Paul describes there in Ephesians 4.13, that we would reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, is what we seek after together. It's not something we do on our own, sitting in silence and reading our Bible. It's something we strive towards together, week in and week out, as we follow Jesus as a group. That is what I want for each of us. No matter who you are, no matter how long you've been here, the call for each and every one of us is to invest in one another so that we all might be built up. No matter what gifts you have, use them so that you and others might grow into all God created us to be. 
And as you do that, nourish yourself on the word of God so that you might continue to grow in your knowledge and wisdom and what it means to follow Jesus. And do that with an awareness of God's presence because he is with us in whatever we do as we seek him. And having done all of that, boldly go into whatever God has in store so that he might be glorified in us. That is what God calls us to do as we live as his church. There's an old preacher who passed away about 10 or so years ago named Fred Craddock, who told a story about the first church he served in. It was in a place called Watts Bar Lake, Tennessee. And he was a really good storyteller, better than I am. So I just want to read his words for us to close today. He says, It was the custom in that church at Easter to have a baptismal service in Watts Bar Lake on Easter evening at sundown. Now out on the sandbar, I, with the candidates for baptism, would move into the water, And then they moved across to the shore where the little congregation was gathered, singing around a fire and cooking supper. They had constructed little booths for changing clothes with hanging blankets. As the candidates moved from the water, they went in and changed clothes and went to the fire in the center. Finally, last of all, I would change clothes and went to the fire in the center. And went to the fire. And once we were all around the fire, Glenn Hickey would introduce the new people, give their names, where they lived, and their work. And the rest of us formed a circle around them while they stayed warm at the fire. The ritual was that each person in the circle then gave their name and said, My name is, and if you ever need somebody to do washing and ironing. My name is, if you ever need anybody to chop wood. My name is, if you ever need anybody to babysit. My name is, if you ever need anybody to repair your house. My name is, if you ever need anybody to sit with the sick. My name is, and... If you ever need a car to go to town, and around the circle. Then we ate, and we had a square dance. And then Percy Miller, with thumbs in his bibbed overalls, would stand up and say, Time to go, and everybody left. He lingered behind, and with his big shoe, kicked sand over the dying fire. At my first experience of that, he saw me standing there still, and he looked at me and said, Craddock, folks don't ever get any closer than this. And that little community, they, they have a name for that. I've heard it in other communities too. In that community, their name for that is church. We are called to follow Jesus alongside one another. My hope and prayer for each of us is that we would invest deeply in this group of people so that we all might be built up into all God desires for us to be. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your church, for this church in particular and your global church as a whole. We ask that you would be with us, that that you would help us, give us wisdom to grow into all you've created us to be. God, you've made us your people. You've made us different from the world. You've called us to holiness. You've called us to equip one another to grow into all that you desire for us. Help us to know how to use those gifts well. Help us to use them in service of one another so that you might be glorified through us. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.